The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'm glad that we sang again, um, O Church Arise. I'm glad we sang that again because I'm going to talk to you about the church tonight, and I hope that you're okay with me preaching a doctrinal sermon to you. So we'll make some points here about the church tonight. Our study resumes this evening with the golden candlestick of the tabernacle, and we're going to tie that into the church in just a few minutes after we review a little bit of the last message. But we are talking about the candlestick known as the a lampstand or the menorah. This is Exodus chapter 25. I forgot to tell you to turn there. But Exodus chapter 25. And without windows or a door that stood open to let light in, this is the singular light source of the tabernacle, the only thing that penetrates the darkness of that, of that room. In Exodus uh, 25, verse number 37, And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. Now the Lord leaves nothing out. Uh, he knows what he needs in worship. But there was a need for light for the priest to see when he went into the tabernacle. And this light is the light that showed him how to do what he needed to do in service to the Lord. As he went about, uh, he could see what he was doing, is what I should say. Uh, it lit up the interior. The material of the lampstand is described in Exodus 25, verse 31. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. So there we learn that this candlestick is made out of pure gold. It's a solid piece that was made of one lump of gold. And it was beaten out by craftsmen and made into the tabernacle's most beautiful furnishing. If you'll show us the picture there that we've been using for our study. Still today, the menorah is the most recognizable symbol of the Jewish religion. And along with the altar of sacrifice, this is also the Bible's most often picture of our Lord and Savior. Now, our picture does show an artist's conception of the lampstand, and there you'll see the other articles that are used in the service where you have uh, the uh, pitcher for pouring in the oil, you have snuffed dishes and so on to snuff out the lights. Those are also made of pure gold, and this stands out against the other furnishings in the tabernacle because um, you are aware, and we'll study a little bit more later how each of the other pieces was wood overlaid with gold. And in that you had a picture of Christ's deity and his humanity. But this is pure gold, solid gold, and there is no picture of humanity in it. But instead, the Trinity is displayed in the lampstand. Not just Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, but also God the Father and God the Holy Spirit have their part or their picture in this lampstand as well. Now, in our previous two lessons, we discussed the first part of our outline, and that is the illuminating gospel, the light of Christ. The gospel is the way that we see Christ. The gospel is the light that shines into the darkened heart of man. We're all born in spiritual darkness. 
We can't comprehend the goodness of God and the depravity of our minds. And neither do we recognize that depravity condemns and separates us from God. And for us to see and understand this, we must have some illumination that comes from the outside. We will never pick this up from anything that is within us. It must come from the outside, and that outside light is the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 terms it the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. It illuminates the path of righteousness. It exposes the vileness of our sins. It attracts with the hope of eternal life, and it guides to eternal life in Christ. So it's not the gospel itself that does that, not just hearing the gospel, but the object of the gospel is the one that makes all these changes, and that object is Jesus Christ himself. And so the lampstand is Christ, who declared himself to be the light of the world. At the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles that we spoke about last week, uh, in Jerusalem when they had this feast, Jesus went to the lighting of the menorahs and standing in front of those huge menorahs that lit up the temple area Jesus said I am the light of the world he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life well that's the first point now we want to move on from that to see another type of illumination and this is where we bring in the doctrine of the church so number two is the illuminating church which is our union with Christ. This is the way that we come into union and fellowship with Christ. I always remind you of Ephesians chapter 5 where it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In these New Testament times it is the church uh, that is central to our worship. The church is central to our relationship with Christ. The gospel of Christ is the illuminating light that we've just said, and where that light is to stand and where that light is declared, where the lampstand, so to speak, stands today is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Often you hear things like the church is a lighthouse, and certainly it is. It's a beacon of hope for the world. The candlestick was made of a single stock. It was a central piece that had branches that that came from the sides, and we really don't have to search very deeply into the scriptures to see the connection between this lampstand and the church. So if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look at this, and there's a lengthy portion of scripture here that we don't have time to read and go into deeply, but I would like to point out a few verses so that you see this connection between the candlestick and the church. This is John's vision in the Revelation. This is where at first he hears the voice of the ascended Christ, and this voice says to him, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And then in verse number 12, and I turned, John said, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and gird about the paps with a golden girdle. A son of man, uh, you may recognize as a frequent designation of Jesus Christ. And I might remind you of previous discussions how that Christ throughout all eternity will always display himself in his glorified human body. He will always appear as a man, who, the one who is the image of the invisible God. 
So at this point, John could see him and John knew him. He wasn't a spirit and he's still God, but he's God in the flesh, just as John remembered him. John saw him standing among seven golden candlesticks. And if you look down in verse number 16, in the last phrase, it says that his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. So in other words, John saw him in the brightness of his glory. And I'm sure that that light, as he looked at Christ, was reminiscent of what he'd seen many, many years before on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there Jesus' face shone as the sun, and his clothing was as white as light. The glory of Christ in light also reminds us of the incident of Paul on the road to Damascus. And there a brilliant light shone on him, and he was blinded by the brightness of it. And Jesus spoke to him out of that light. God is light, and Jesus Christ is God, and so in his eternal manifestations, he will appear in the brilliance of glorious light. Later, John wrote in the Revelation uh, how that the heavenly New Jerusalem has no need of the sun or of the moon because Jesus Christ himself is the light of that eternal city. But going on here in Revelation chapter 1, we see the meaning of these seven candlesticks that surround Christ as he spoke in verses 19 and 20. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now those of you who have been here for a while, you surely know what happens after this. Uh, next comes Revelation 2 and 3. And those, are, those two chapters are letters sent to the seven churches of Asia. And these candlesticks represent those seven churches whose responsibility it was to be a light of Christ. Now, in that sermon series we had some time ago, The Spirit Speaks to Seven Churches, we learned which of those church were, churches were commended because they were faithful to the Lord. But we also learned that there were most of those churches, five of them, five of the seven, were chastised by the Lord. They were condemned with very strong rebukes because they were disobedient to their responsibilities. Then we see that the Lord has seven stars in his hands. Those are also lights. They refer to the angels of the churches. Angel is simply, in this context, is a word that means messenger. And so these angels represent the pastors of churches. And there is a sense in which pastors are also lights as they represent Christ when they speak to God's people. But the main connection that I want you to see uh, in the use of candlestick is that it refers to the church. And without doubt, this would, this would take the reader right back to the lampstand in the tabernacle that was the source of light in that darkened space. Then I also want to point out in reading in Revelation that the churches that are mentioned here, seven candlesticks, they are all named. They are all named. Each of them is an individual church. In verse number 11, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book. And send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So John here does not write to a universal, invisible, non-entity that some call the church. 
And he couldn't write to such an entity because there isn't a location for it. There isn't a post office box for it. There's not a delivery address for it. And that's because it's invisible. And it's invisible because it doesn't exist. So these are churches that are named. They have a location. They have members that gather. They assemble. They are visible. And that is the ordinary New Testament sense of the word church. When Paul wrote his letters, he wrote to visible churches. There are churches in cities that are throughout the Roman Empire. He could go there. He could visit them. He wrote to them. They are a body of believers, a visible body of believers. The New Testament refers to the church as the body of Christ. And I would just ask, is an invisible spirit seen or is a body seen? Well, a body is seen. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 5.30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That should be very clear to us that the church is a body, flesh and bones. It's visible. When the disciples saw Jesus at the resurrection, this is what, what he said. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. So he was real. He's not a spirit. And I believe that that's a fair representation of Ephesians 5 when Paul says we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And Paul could say that when he wrote to the Ephesian church because they were a visible body. The church is visible because it is a body that congregates. It is an assembly that worships. It's a fellowship of people that are gathered together. And this church is to be the lighthouse of the gospel in a sin-darkened world. So the connection here is very clear. There's a candlestick in the tabernacle that, in fact, is a type of the Lord's church, a visible congregation of people in different localities that shine for Christ. Well, this sets us up for some very important considerations regarding the church. Um, I, I mentioned, I think, a week or so ago that I have always been a church man. I do believe in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that there is nothing in this world that is above the church. The church is Christ's body on the earth. He's not here visibly, but his church is. And he gave the church to visibly be his body and represent him on earth until he comes again. And so seeing that's true, there can't be anything that is above his church. But sadly, most Christians don't see it that way. And the evidence is to look around our auditorium tonight and say, well, why don't we have as many people tonight as we had this morning? And I would say, well, it's because people have other allegiances besides the church. There are other things that they do. Um, I've said this before. In fact, I said it just a week or so ago. Uh, this is very unpopular and I don't care, but I say it again because it's true. I've often heard church people speak of the pecking order in their lives. And they put it this way, God comes first, my family comes second, and church is third. Then maybe some will say, and my country, that is fourth. Now is that supposed to make us think that the church uh, is, is something that, that God wants for us, is great for us? When we put it down, they're at least third on the list, behind family, above our country, that's not right. If God is first, then obedience to God is first. And if God is first and Christ 
the church is Christ's body on the earth, then the church has to be right there with him. That's his body. So, you remember Jesus said that you might be called on to forsake your family. If your family interferes with worship, if it interferes with serving God, if it interferes and gets in the way of service, then family must be pushed down the list. I know that's not popular, but that is the truth. Now, you'll also notice in, in Ephesians 5 that the discussion there, when, when I quote that Christ loved the church and gave himself forth, the whole discussion there is about husband and wife and the relationship that husband and wife have to each other, bone of bone and flesh of flesh. In other words, what the scripture is telling us is you can't separate husband and wife. When, when a person, when two people get married, they become one flesh. And so the Bible says that a man is to love his wife as his own body. And he's to nourish her and cherish her as his own body. It says they are one flesh. But what's the purpose of that entire discussion? Well, it's to bring us around to the church. It demonstrates Christ's relationship to his church. We are members of his flesh and of his bones. So that ought to be very clear, that the church cannot be separated from Christ. And so if God is first and Christ is God, then the church must be put above everything else. Oh, but how few put the church first. How few consider the church in their decisions. How few check the church against their schedules. To neglect the church is to neglect Christ. And I might also say that when you become a member of this church, your obligations are to this church. This is Christ's body for you. And you can't excuse your absence from the church by going to another church and calling it all good. If you're a member of Berean Baptist Church, then Berean Baptist Church is where you should be when we meet. Now, I'm not talking about vacations, obviously, and when we're away. I think it's good if you take a vacation to, to visit other churches. I like to do that because I kind of like to see what's going on and hear what's being preached. I like to meet Christians in other places. I'm speaking about our ordinary everyday lives as we go about our business here when we're, when we're present uh, in this area. We need to be in our church when the church meets. Now this talk of, of uh, candlesticks and light in the body of Christ does have some serious implications for believers. In the New Testament, there is never a thought that a believer would not become a member of the Lord's church. In fact, when people were baptized in the New Testament, what was in view? Well, first, baptism identifies us with Christ. It's a public declaration of Christ. Baptism is commanded. It's not optional. Every believer is to be identified with Christ. And if that public declaration is not made, if it is refused, then there's no reason to believe that person is a Christian. Why? Well, because they're disobedient to baptism. Christ is Lord, and to obey is to recognize him as Lord. That, that's, our, that's first in our reasons here. But second is that baptism is commanded or committed to the church. It is a church ordinance. And so when a person is baptized, he receives his baptism under the authority of the church. This is the reason Jorge doesn't go out in his neighborhood in the afternoon and just baptize everybody he sees in the swimming pool over there. He doesn't do that because he doesn't have the authority to do that. The authority rests in the Lord's church. 
I don't have any authority to baptize anybody myself unless I do it under the authority of this church. So baptism is, is under the authority of the church. It's identification with Christ. It's identification with the body of Christ, which is the church. So then, this is why we say that baptism is the entrance into the church. This is what happened in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Then they that gladly received his word, that is, they were listening to the preaching of Peter, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, when we baptize people, they become members of Berean Baptist Church. You see, here on Pentecost, this, this is... This is a precedent for us. On Pentecost, when these people were baptized, they became a part of the apostles and the 120 that are in the church that you see in chapter 1. So they're baptized into that body, into the Jerusalem church. And then it says they joined the apostles in breaking of bread. That's the Lord's Supper, in fellowship and in prayer. Some of you old-timers here in our church, you may remember... There was a time when baptism didn't make a person a member of the church. A separate application had to be made. And so many people were baptized without becoming members. And that's wrong. And that's wrong because it's a recipe for failure for the individual and for the church. But there was a reason that this was done. It seemed that the highest priority was to keep people walking down aisles. The measurement of the success of the church was how many people can you get down to the front at invitation time. And so a separate application was needed for church membership because that made every convert a twofer. You understand what I'm saying? They come for salvation and then they come for baptism and church membership and, well, they came for salvation and baptism then for church membership that makes them come down the aisle twice and that is terrific for your stats and that's pretty much what it was but God forbid that we should be bean counters I mean God forbid that we're our measure of success is human efforts and devising schemes and getting people to right walk down aisles but that's another subject for another day that deserves time but not here we're talking about the candlestick so we want to look at the bigger picture the bigger picture is the church and the importance of it to the Christian. How do we consider the church? Well, this is going to be a subject for a little bit. I won't get it all done tonight. I want to make this statement, and then we're going to take a little time to discuss why this is true. Here is our statement. Every Christian should be a member of the church. And not only should they be a member of a church, but they should be a member of a true church. You see, church has become sort of a generic noun for any group of people that decides to meet on a Sunday, or in some cases meet on a Saturday. I've even heard Jewish synagogues called churches. Now, in the New Testament, the church is always a body of baptized believers that are organized with the gospel central and with proper baptism and with connection to the church that was founded during the personal ministry of Jesus Christ. The true church has never apostatized. The true church has never needed reformation. 
The true church is exactly as Jesus said. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, since Jesus was here and founded the church, there has always been a true gospel lighthouse church. It never morphed into Catholicism or anything else. And so your job is to find a church connected to the New Testament, not connected to Catholicism through Protestantism. So that's first. There is one true church. And I don't mean among all the millions of churches that are across the world that only the Berean Baptist Church is the true church. I do mean that only churches of like faith in order to Berean are true churches. And if I didn't believe that much, I'd be a member someplace else of something else. So I wouldn't say that's an arrogant statement. I would say that's an inevitable logical conclusion. If the church is not of like faith and order to the New Testament church, then we don't want any part of it. And the point is that if we are of like faith and order to the New Testament church, then other true churches must be of like faith and order to us. I hope you got all that and understand the reasoning. It's what we call the unity of the Spirit in Christ. Ephesians 4 says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Very simply stated that a church that is true to the Lord Jesus Christ, true to the New Testament, is a, a part of this one entity that, that is represented by the Lord's church in the first century. So that when you find a true church, it's always going to be connected to that church, and that in turn connects all true churches together. So this is why I say that any true church, if we're a true church, then any true church must be of like faith in order to us. That only makes sense. So the, these, these verses are a church message. You don't get this message outside of the true, visible New Testament church. So if I ask you, is it important to be a member of the true New Testament church and to work in that church? Then what defense would you have for any other answer than it's supremely important to be a member of the church? And I will also say that a fantasy invisible church is not satisfaction to the command to be a part of the body of Christ. In fact, that's dangerous to your well-being because the invisible church has invisible commitments. There are no obligations satisfied to an invisible church. Well, what are some of the reasons to be a member of the Lord's church? We're going to look at that. And I want to give you some one-word answers. I have just time for two of those tonight. So we'll start with two and we won't be able to finish the list. But why should we be a member of the New Testament church? Well, number one is because of truth. The church is the place of truth. The candlestick represents Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, what do the scriptures say about the church and truth? Well, you need to mark this scripture well, because you can't escape your supreme obligation to the church because of this. 1 Timothy 3.15 But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It is the church that upholds truth. 
It's the foundation upon which the superstructure of truth stands. In other words, the doctrines of God's word are committed to the Lord's church. They're committed to the church for safekeeping and for transference to converts. Now, can you imagine the danger if Paul said, well, the foundation of the truth is the individual Christian. If I were to say, well, Lino over here, he is the foundation of truth. So if you want to go to find truth, you go to Lino. Well, I don't think that would work very well, although he knows a lot of truth, but he's not the foundation of the truth. The foundation of truth can't be an individual Christian. If the universal invisible church theory is true, that would be one of the consequences. But there isn't a possibility that Paul referred to the church in that way in this scripture. This can't be an invisible church, which is just disjointed individuals. It must be what the church actually is, a visible body of connected, fellowshipping people. If we are individual interpreters of the word, then the word will be open to many strange interpretations. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 3. I want to show you how God speaks specifically to the church. Now first we're going to look at verse number, verse number 9. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 9. And pay attention to this first, first uh, sentence to see what Paul's talking about. In verse number 9, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now the importance of pointing out this passage is that Paul speaks to the church at Corinth about foundations, and he writes to the church assembled. He's not writing to individual Christians. Now if you go down to verse 16, it says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Most of you are familiar with a similar statement that's made in chapter 6. And in that chapter, Paul said that your body, you remember this? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in that chapter, he's speaking to the individual Christian, and that's determined by the context. But here in the third chapter, the context is different. His subject is the collective body of the church. So the church is the body of Christ, and he's not talking about individuals. He said in that in that. Ninth verse, I said, notice that ye are laborers together and you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you. So very clearly, he's talking about the church body in that context. So here is a command for church members to live holy lives and not to live differently is to defile the church, the body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit dwells with the church uniquely in the corporate worship setting. He indwells the individual, individual Christian, that's true. But since this is not the individual that's, that's under consideration, we have to ask, well, what, what is it that the church is doing? Or the Holy Spirit, rather, is doing in the church today? Well, when we meet to study God's Word together as the church, the Holy Spirit is here to guide us into the teaching of truth. As the pillar and ground 
of the truth, you receive instruction. You receive it from pastors and from teachers. You receive it from those that God sets over you to show you the truth. And you should have confidence in your leaders that they're telling you the truth because God established that order as reflected in Paul's instructions in Ephesians chapter 4. There he says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Here's the purpose for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that is the purpose of teaching in the church. The church is a lighthouse of instruction so that, as Paul says, you come to maturity in the faith of Christ. So this means that the church is a method, a means of sanctification. You need the church for your perfection, that is to grow from a baby in Christ to a steadfast, knowledgeable Christian who can teach others what you have learned. So Christians that neglect the light of the church are immature. The pastor is in the pulpit every Sunday to preach the word, every Sunday morning, every Sunday afternoon, Bible studies on Wednesday, and that purpose is to help you to grow in the faith. Scripture says one of the qualifications for a pastor is that he must have ability to teach. What is the purpose of that? So that Christ will be glorified by the saints who live righteous lives that will magnify him. So I hope that when you come to church, you are learning. Is that your goal? Do you come because you want to learn the Word of God? Do you want to be more like Christ? And that's, I think, our purpose, isn't it? We worship together, we come together, we listen to sermons so that we can be more like Christ. He said, you will come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So I would say to you, if you don't want to be like Christ, then stay away from the church. And the longer you do, the less you'll look like Christ. And finally, no one will identify you as a Christian. But I would say if your desire is not better than that, then you aren't a Christian. But I look over this congregation tonight and I wonder, who am I talking to? You're here. I mean, you recognize the value of everything that I said. Unfortunately, those who aren't here remain in ignorance to this point. And that is the point, isn't it? Well, what else do you need the church for? Well, number two is you need the church for ordinances. I've already spoken of baptism. The church consents to the baptism of converts, so it's impossible for anyone to receive scriptural baptism without a scriptural church to administer it. And I'll also add that the importance of being a, a member of the right church, that, that that's necessary because not everyone has the authority to baptize. This doesn't mean that you could just walk into any building that calls itself a church or I mean, people, group of people meeting in a building that calls itself a church. And yeah, they've got the authority to baptize because they got church on the front door. No, what is the qualification? It has to be a church of like faith in order to the New Testament church to have the authority. Now, I, I've mentioned, that this, this is a standout example to me uh, that I've mentioned so many times, that, that young couple who wanted to become members of the church. And I'm not going to go into that story again. You're familiar with it. But I will say that I questioned this, this young couple about their baptism, and they told me that they were baptized on the beach by YWAM. 
And I said, why wham? Is that the pillar and ground of the truth? Who gave them the authority to baptize? They don't have any authority to baptize. That belongs to the Lord's church. Now, anyway, only the true church of Christ can administer baptism. In Acts 19, we have a case of a wrong baptism. And those people were baptized again properly. And that's what's required. In my tenure as pastor of this church, I baptized many who were not properly baptized. When I first became pastor, I did a series on the statement of faith. Like I say, the old timers remember that. I did a series on the statement of faith, and it has a part about scriptural baptism. And I was surprised after preaching that, that there were members of the church that weren't baptized properly. And after I taught, those of you remember, taught that, you remember, we had some people that were members of the church for a long time, and they came to receive proper baptism when they understood that it wasn't right. We even had a deacon that had not been baptized by right authority. He left the church for, for many reasons, but then this is one of them. He talked to me about it. This is one of them. He didn't like what I taught about baptism. And then the other ordinance is the Lord's Supper. Next week we will observe the Lord's Supper. And we are commanded as a church to observe the Supper until Christ returns. And you search high and low and you'll not find the Lord's Supper outside of the context of church fellowship. And that's part of the importance of understanding why we don't believe in a universal invisible church. I mean, how does it, how does it actually meet to observe the Supper? It's part of the reason we have a restricted communion. It ties back into the definition of the church. If the church is local and visible and the local body is the body of Christ in that location, then how would you invite others to participate? They're members of churches wherever, someplace else. That's the body they answer to. And I, and I want to make it very clear that other people um, that come and visit us and are Christians, they're no less Christians than we are. They have the same faith. They, have the, they, they believe like we do, and they're all Christians. It only has to do with this factor, and that is the church that they're a member of is the church that they answer to. That's the church that they submit to for discipline. And we could go into that part and show scriptural proof, but I don't have time. But I'll simply say this, that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church is not to allow participation of those who do not submit to the authority of the church. And that submission can only be by the membership, the ones that are members of the local body, because we don't have any authority over anyone else. I don't have any authority over anyone that's outside of this church that's not a member. And the only authority they have on the inside of the church is the authority that God grants me. And so the, the Lord's Supper then must be observed within the communion of the church itself. Now as I close this evening, I might also mention this about the supper and the authority of it. Back in the summer, uh, there was a commemoration of the 50-year anniversary of the moon landing in 1969. I didn't know about this, but maybe some of you read it in the papers, or uh, maybe I think Christianity Today may have had an article about this as well. But the story is about Buzz Aldrin, who um, went to the moon, and he took um, communion elements with him to the moon. Now, that's, that's a great story, and how that he believed in the Lord, and of course, he was awed by God's creation. 
Can you imagine being a Christian and getting to see the world, seeing the earth from that viewpoint? It makes you think, certainly it make you think about God, wouldn't it? I mean, out in space and see the world from that viewpoint. Well, Buzz Aldrin thought it was fitting that the Lord would be honored by taking communion. And I don't know how he did it, but he observed the communion by himself and Neil Armstrong looked on but didn't participate. And this whole incident kind of flew under the radar. Uh, NASA didn't want to uh, uh, publicize it because there was already a lot of fussing and going on about reading scripture from space. You know, the atheists were all against that. So they didn't really publicize this. But it looked like, and we would think, well, that is such an awesome gesture by a Christian. It's just outstanding from man's standpoint to do something like that. But it's not outstanding from God's standpoint. And the reason it's not is because the supper is a church ordinance. It's to be observed in the body of the church. When we went to Israel a few years ago, I was asked if I would serve at a communion observance at the garden tomb. And that's just a regular touristy thing to do. And they have places for tour groups to observe communion. And uh, I declined because tour groups are not authorized to take the Lord's Supper. In fact, I, I believe that denigrates the supper. When we take the, the supper, we understand the solemnity of the meaning as it relates to the teaching of the word and the body of the church that's gathered together in close fellowship with each other. We are a church body. Uh, in fact, we know the ins and outs of each other's lives. I mean, we know what's going on in the membership. And we commune with Christ and we commune with each other as the church of the living God. And some other setting... Doing it in some other setting, quite frankly, is to remove Christ from it. See, the supper in that context is a very emotional thing for tourists to do. I confess that at, that is very emotional. I mean, the Holy Land, if you ever get to go, it's inspiring. Uh, no doubt it's inspiring. And there are ways that make you feel closer to God. I remember when, when we went, uh, I had just started the Matthew series. And when I came back, and I was preaching about Christ and all of his travels around Israel and especially in Galilee. I mean, these places keep coming back to my mind. It's just stand out. It just, I don't know how to say that, but it was just some, it was like you're closer to God because of that experience. And, and for me, the big day was sailing on the Sea of Galilee. When I think about the disciples and Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee, I have to say that was a very moving experience. Some, Tourists want to get baptized in the Jordan River. But that's nothing but an emotional thing. That has no meaning. Because that's not in any sense connected with the church, which it must be. And so I think taking the ordinances out of the place where God intended them to be ruins the pictures. Be like taking the candlestick out of the, out of the uh, tabernacle. And I think I said a few weeks ago, I'll go and visiting a cave or something. I light my way through the cave with the candlestick. Well, that's not its purpose. It's not to be taken out of the, taken out of the, of the tabernacle. Well, I'm out of time, so I'm going to stop here. These are two reasons or responses to this question. Should I be a member of the church? To be a part of the church is to receive instruction in the truths of God's word. It is the pillar and ground of the truth. And the church is the only authorized institution for the observance of the ordinances. You can't get those in any other place. So should you be a member of the church? Well, you can't be like Christ if you're not 
a part of his body. More reasons next week. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight, and I hope that I can save all the members of Brian Baptist Church that are here this evening, and, and we thank you for them. We thank you for visitors that are with us as well. But I hope, hopefully, all the members of Berean Baptist Church agree to this, that we are the body of Christ and that we want to honor you with our lives. We are in fellowship with each other. And Lord, we want to know truth. We want to practice truth. And so we look into the New Testament to see how was it done there? How did the church operate there? And then we take that as our cue that this is the way that you want the church to worship. So we thank you for what we've learned tonight. We thank you for the study of the tabernacle that just shows us these many pictures of Christ and gives the opportunity for us to bring in the New Testament and practices that we do now. This is the way the Bible is taught. It's how we learn more by, by examining and comparing this to practices in the church and in our lives. Thank you for this tonight, Lord. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org